Warning, the following podcast contains foul language, sexual themes, and all sorts of other fun stuff. Not to mention, this episode in particular contains roughly nine minutes of Emmy talking about her butthole. So if you don't want to hear any poop jokes or tummy-related issues, skip to about nine minutes into the episode. And if you want to skip straight to the book stuff, skip to about uh, 20 minutes into the episode. We'll see you later. We are on Emmy intro number two. Last time I had an intro, I got to tell you all about my excruciating face pain. This time, I get to tell you all about going to the hospital. You see, I woke up at 2.30 in the morning last Saturday and felt like somebody was stabbing me just under my ribs in the center of my abdomen. I was on the couch writhing in pain for four hours before it stopped. Monday, my poop was black. (laughs) That's not good. I also threw. I also threw up in the sink on Saturday night when I woke Why up. Why the sink? Was that just like it, the first place you could get to? Yep. Okay, good. Just making sure. We have a garbage disposal. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's disgusting, but you know, it's fine. Um, Tuesday. I'm like, you know what? We're we're going. We're going to the ER. So I go to work. I pick up Steffi after work. We go straight to the ER. Six hours. Six hours we're in the ER. I do not see a doctor. It is 2 a.m. We leave because I'm like, you need sleep. You have to go to school in the morning. So we leave. Next day I pick her up at noon, skip work, go back to the ER. This time, we're there until 8 o'clock at night, roundabout. They CT scan me. They give me drugs. And they're like, yeah, so we we tested it, and you you definitely have stool in your blood, or blood in your stool. (laughs) You got shit in your blood, Emmy. (laughs) There's shit in your blood. (laughs) No, they're like, you have blood in your stool, but uh, we don't know what's wrong. Okay. I'm like... troubling. Cool. So they're like, yeah, you need to just go see a GI specialist. I'm like, I... uh, This was after... Uh, I very painfully had fingers shoved up my asshole. Oh yeah, were they doing a, like a prostate exam? No, they were they were extracting fecal matter. Oh, oh that's worse. Yeah, that's worse. <laughs> so I try and call the GI specialist, and then she explains that they can't do referrals, but there was some misunderstanding here because they did put their GI specialist. On the paperwork they gave me. Okay. We need a special content warning for this episode. We do. I'm, I'll I'll record a special one. Yeah, they need to know what time they can skip to. to when I uh, go back. Yeah. To yeah, avoid to avoid this. Um, 
but yeah, they told me I have to go see the specialist. I call a specialist and they're like, uh, yeah, you need a PCP referral. And I'm like, your hospital's ER told me to call you to set up an appointment. And they're like, yeah, but our ER can't refer you. The ER can't refer you to doctor or specialist. And I'm like, so I have to go to a PCP, a primary care provider, for those of you who may not know, to get a referral to the GI specialist that your ER told me I should go to your hospital to see. So the GI specialist is in the hospital? Yes. And they won't see you on a... I don't know if you know this, but American healthcare is a scam. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like... That's fucked up. And they, on the paperwork, it says, see, I need to see a GI specialist immediately. But now I have to wait until Friday when I have my appointment with the PCP so that I can get a referral from them to go to the gym. Just like, what the well, it's good that you were able to get in with a PCP so quickly. I know that a lot of them, I say so quickly, but like a lot of the ones uh, in like our immediate area have like two month wait times to get. Oh, in. yeah. It's the same here. I got really lucky apparently because I at before going to the ER originally, I tried to just schedule a PCP visit like ASAP. Mm hmm instead of going to the ER for this. And the soonest I could get was December. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can't just hope this isn't a problem until then. Now here, here is where it gets really fun. After I get the PCP visit scheduled, they send me a link for my account on the website mm -hmm. where it has the, the appointment set up, but it also has all the tests they ran on me. I, being a person who likes information, <laughs> analyze all these tests. Things they didn't tell me. I have two hernias. You have two hernias that they didn't tell you about? Yes. Oh my god. Not in the location where I was in pain. So I guess they were just like, well, that's not part of the... Did they see that on the CT? Oh my god. Did you have to drink some nasty shit when you did it? Oh no, I was on an IV. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, I work in diagnostic imaging. So that's the only reason that I asked is because I was curious if you had to drink like gastro or barium. But if they, well, cause like sometimes they'll do both oral and IV, but considering what you were experiencing, it's not surprising that they were like, yeah, don't drink anything. Well, when I was leaving, they were like, yeah, we got you this GI slurry or something that was like yeah. to numb it. And I was like, N they were like, it doesn't taste good. I'm like, don't give me that. I throw up very easily. Yeah. If I, I don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, two hernias that I didn't know about. Two, I then. I can't believe they didn't tell you that you have two hernias. I mean, with all the shit in you do, I'm not surprised. That that's what I, I was like. Hernia. It's probably from my IBS. Yeah. So then I'm looking at the like the blood tests and stuff. And I'm looking at the levels that are wrong. And I'm looking up like what causes that. Most common factor I can find between them is liver damage. I take a lot of different medications that can yeah. cause liver damage. The pain I was experiencing in my abdomen was where my liver is located. 
So somehow they had a list of the medications I take, which have potential liver damage issues, had multiple elevated levels of different chemicals in my blood and urine that showed potential liver damage. And we're just like, hmm, guess we don't need to worry about that. Um, brief aside, I'm going to send a screenshot to the main chat so you can see what your camera looks like to me right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know what is going on with you, but there is a ghost in your house. I am a lot of squares. <laughs> you are so many squares. The I'll best part, I have, have like this. one gigabyte internet, like, or no, yeah. it's two gigabit upload, or is it? No, it's two okay, gigabyte download, back to but yeah. Now. I can see your face. I'll, I'll tweet, I'll tweet that screenshot so that people can see it like a behind scenes. <laughs> So yeah, welcome to American Healthcare. They didn't decide to, after the CT scan, they didn't give me an ultrasound. They didn't do an x-ray. They didn't do an MRI. They were like, CT scan, that's it. We don't know. That is fucked up. I, I can't, I like, I. it is astounding to me that they didn't verbally tell you that you have a hernia. Two hernias. Like, obviously, you have the results, so, like, you can see for yourself. It's not like they, like, kept information from you, but why wouldn't they tell you? Well, the best part is they didn't include it on my paperwork. It was something I had to go into the MyCharts website and specifically... Did you see when it was dictated? Like, was maybe it dictated by a radiologist after you left? The notes were from before I left. Okay. <laughs> That's fucked up. I'm so sorry. If you came to my practice and got a CT, we would never do that to you. Well, actually, technically, yes, we would because we send the results to the doctor and then the doctor has to tell you. Um, so if the doctor doesn't tell you, that's on them. Yeah, the uh, the doctor just didn't didn't bother that's to tell so me. <laughs> all right, well. So um, uh, for all of you wondering, <laughs> Why Why did we suddenly get another break in Literary Masters Pod? Yeah. It's because I started work and then my body decided to revolt. Yeah. Currently, your work schedule is like the diametrically opposite. opposed to mine. Yes. Because I work from 7 to 3 Monday through Friday and you work 3 to 7. And after 7, there's like no point in trying to record <laughs> Um, we, we can only record on weekends. So if yeah. my body decides that I'm going to suffer on the weekend. Yeah, we're a little fucked. But, you know, I, you know, I've got, well, I, I don't want to, like, say, like, oh, I've got, like, new jobs in the pipeline because it's still going to be Monday through Friday. Like, we're still going to only be able to record on the weekend. But I'm, you know. <sighs> I do have new jobs in the pipeline, kind of. Hopefully they don't get you fired before you get one. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> hey, is it standard practice to contact the boss of your current job? <laughs> <laughs> 
so I don't know if I talked about this in the last episode, um, but I've been working on getting my teaching license. And so it's a very convoluted process, but basically where it stands now, I am eligible to be employed as a full-time teacher in Texas. I don't have a license, but through the program that I'm in, I can be a teacher, right? For one year before I get my license. So that has led to several school districts reaching out to me asking, you know, like, if I want to apply to be a teacher, which there's one that I have to call tomorrow. Don't let me forget, Emmy. This is on you. Don't put that on me. <laughs> but one of them I applied to, and well, I've applied to several, and I applied to this school district, and the following morning, before I had a chance to talk to my boss about this, which I should say, I have been transparent with my boss that I've been like trying to get a new job. So he's aware, and he's very nice. And he wants what's best for me. And he knows that like at my current job, I would never be able to make the kind of money I would be able to make with an actual career as a teacher. So not that it's that great <laughs> pay to be a teacher, but it's a lot better than what I'm making now. So I applied Monday night, Tuesday morning, my boss comes in and he's like, hey, so I got uh, an email from such and such school district last night asking for like, a, a reference check and I was like oh my god I like this was like 7 45 in the morning I'm like answering phones like dealing with patients and he was like so what's going on with the school district and I was like ah I didn't ah I did not expect them to email you so quickly like I didn't even think it was a possibility that I was going to be getting anyone reaching out to me this late in the process because for anyone who doesn't know? It's currently September 5th. Uh, schools in America start in mid-August. So, like, I was fully convinced that at the stage I was in, I was not going to get hired for this school to school year. And the odds are that I probably won't. Um, but I didn't know until, like, until Monday that, like, this was even really a possibility. And then for Tuesday morning for him to be like, so are you leaving? And I was like, oh, God, um, maybe, I guess. I didn't expect them to email you. Yeah, why? Like, it's really weird to reach out before they've even spoken to you. I'm assuming it's an automated thing because they emailed him the same night that I applied. So I'm assuming that because I listed him as my current employer with his email address, that the system just like sent him an email asking for a reference check, which is like, fine. I mean, I he'll say nice things about me because he's a good person, but it's just like, I hadn't even had a chance to speak with him about it. And I felt so awkward because like, I, this The job I'm in is, I mean, it's not highly skilled, but it's not an easy job to do by any means. And getting someone trained to the point where they could take over for me would take a few weeks at minimum um, for them to get up to the point where, like, they wouldn't just be screwing up all the time. And not to mention, I'm the opener, so, like, you have to get there at, like, 6.30 in the morning. You have to be able to run the place by yourself because you're the only one in the building and stuff like that. So like, it's not super easy. <laughs> and so he was basically like, 
I mean, you know, just be transparent with me. And I was like, I would. I didn't think that, like, they were going to email you immediately after I applied. And he just said that they were just going to put a job listing up just in case. And, like, maybe they'll get some resumes in. And then if I hear more back from this job, then they'll, like, actually interview people. But if not, then, like, oh, well. (laughs) Like, they have a few resumes that they received. Um but it's kind of a high stress job. So like his, I could see the panic on his face as he was talking to me about it. Like, do I need to find someone? (laughs) Like right now, do I need to find someone? Because if I started a teaching job at this point in the school year, I'm going to have to start like yesterday. (laughs) Wait, do you have a time machine? I wish, I wish. So I could go back to June and be like, hey, Sarah. Uh, take care of this shit now so that you don't have to be scrambling in September trying to find a place to work. Procrastination. To be fair, though, like, there's a lot of other stuff I could do while I'm, like, preparing to get my teaching license. You don't actually have to work the one year unlicensed to get it. You have to do, like, in-class observations, which... If you are working unlicensed, you don't have to get like quote unquote observations because you're literally teaching. And there's a bunch of like coursework and stuff that you have to do. But, and I know for a lot of people, it probably sounds really terrifying that like people are able to just go teach without a teaching license. But like, first of all, in my case, I've kind of always wanted to be a teacher and I am a good teacher. I taught preschool for a while and I was in school to be a teacher for a while. I just wound up switching for extenuating extenuating circumstances. But also the teacher shortage is really bad right now. So basically if you have a four-year degree in a relevant subject like English, social studies, uh, math, or science, you know, then they're basically like, take a test pass a comprehensive exam to prove that you like understand the foundations of being a teacher and we'll put you in a classroom because they have no one to teach and it sucks but the the education system is really bad and the public education system i should say is really bad in this country one of the fair, things so's I, the private just for different reasons oh yeah for sure one of the things that like i am dreading the most about going to teach like one of the school districts that reached out to me is in a very wealthy area. And now this is good and bad. Uh, It's good because they'll probably pay pretty well starting, but it's bad because these are gonna be like really affluent kids. And I don't know if I wanna deal with affluence because I've never been affluent. How do I communicate with kids who are and like teach them about the problems in our society when most of their parents probably don't believe that they exist? Oh no, not the gays <laughs> teaching about problems in societies. I really want, because in Texas classrooms, you have to have an American flag and you have to have a Texas flag. And I saw a, a Texas flag online that the star is replaced with the Black Lives Matter fist. <laughs> and I really want to like stealth switch out the Texas flag in my classroom for the one with the the black lives like <laughs> i think that would be great that time sarah got and lost a teaching job within the same <laughs> week 
Yeah. Um, but we can get started talking about the book. Uh, we're picking up on chapter 12 of Warm Bodies. I actually don't have my copy nearby, so, you know, I may need you for reference. <clears throat> um, but when we last left off, R had just, like, stealthed his way into the stadium by pretending to be human while his zombie friends were running behind him. And then when his zombie friends ran away, they ran away like oddly human. And the guys at the gate were like, what? <laughs> what was that? Very good. But so chapter 12 picks up. R walks through the stadium, which as we know, has been transformed into kind of a miniature city by the humans. And he begins to experience big memories of life in the stadium via the many human lives he's consumed since becoming a zombie. And he experiences these little flashes of memory of like going through the stadium a lot throughout the next couple of chapters. I'm not good. I don't, I definitely didn't list every single time he was having those flashes because it was a lot. And I was like, we will never get through this. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this happens a lot. He remembers a time when the stadiums were new and unfamiliar, when the humans elected new leaders who were essentially charismatic grifters with no real intent to lead them honorably. Oh my god, Isaac Marion <laughs> predicted the future. Well, I mean, it's all of human history has been this way, but like really since 2016, it's been bad. Would we call um, it charismatic? <laughs> I think some people's idea of charismatic is a bit... Hey, uh, Adolf Hitler still had a 20 in charisma. Trump does not. <laughs> I mean, I think he technically does. Well, it's more like he is a 14 in charisma, and then his followers all have, like, an 8 in wisdom. Well, see, I think it's like he has a negative 10 in charisma, but, like because it's not normal person charisma. It's like yeah, it's not weird charisma. charisma. <laughs> He's still got high charisma. It's just, we have really high insight. <laughs> so like we understand that he's a grifter. Anyway, R follows Julie's scent and his memories through the city, stopping at one point to watch through the window of a school as a group of children uh, dissects a still quote unquote living zombie. He watches as a young man learns to kill zombies in a scenario not so different from the zombies quote-unquote school back at the airport. Um, one thing that I actually forgot to mention here is that all of the streets in the stadium are, they don't have names, they have symbols. So like there's Diamond Street, there's Heart Street, there's Fish Street and stuff like that. And well, not I don't, them. not all of them, there is one that doesn't. But I, like, I don't know if this is, if this was supposed to be poignant for the story or if this was shorthand because Isaac was like, I forgot he can't read. So how am I supposed to have him, like, navigate through the streets? Oh, I know. It'll just be symbols. Well, he does say that it's because uh, the kids don't actually learn to read and write anymore. Mm, they don't do yeah. that until later if they've already shown that they can handle other stuff, which 
it may also be a way to get around our not being able to read. And so it's a bit of a compromise, but yeah. it also is a very questionable thing for any society that comes from high literacy to then say, we're going to return to low literacy, especially when they're like, right, like, if you're going on rating parties, you need to understand the things that you're grabbing and not everything can be understood just by looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for, here's a duffel bag, fill it with every orange bottle you come across. Like, you don't, like, there is some level of, like, you don't even need to know. It's just, like, everything off the shelf, swipe it into a bag and run. It's just, um, it's a questionable decision. But apparently there's a, lot, there's a lot of questionable decisions going on in this uh, society. Yeah, well, it's, like, it's it's just another example of them stripping away the things that represent wants versus the things that represent needs. Clearly, whoever made the choice to stop educating the children in reading and writing was thinking of reading and writing as luxury activities rather than as things that are necessary to function in society, which, given the society they currently live in, I guess they're not technically wrong, but if you're going to rebuild that society, it is so much easier to teach a child how to read than it is to teach an adult how to read. Yeah, that's my like, thought. It's like, if you're going to ever yeah. try and rebuild, if these, if most people don't know how to read and write, how are they going to read instruction manuals? You learn how things are they gonna, like, so <laughs> easy when you're that age. I used to, when I taught preschool, I used to regularly teach young children the concept of numbers and they would learn it in a day. Like they before, no idea what a number was. Now they know what a number is and they can write them down. Okay, like that was the process. It was a one day thing. I had a four year old who spoke three languages. She spoke English, Korean and Chinese fluently. <laughs> She's one of the smartest kids in the class and she was four. And that's because when you're that age, you learn things very, very easily. Like. Because you got nothing in your brain. You got no conflicting thoughts. It's like, this is how you say hello in English, Chinese, and Korean. And I understand that there is a difference in the Chinese languages between Cantonese and Mandarin, but her parents always just called it Chinese. So I don't know which, which language she spoke. Got okay? nothing in my brain. She probably spoke Cantonese. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. I can't R believe is, you did not acknowledge my Taylor Swift reference. I loved your Taylor Swift is coming out with a new album. I'm aware. October I'm very 21st. excited. I don't know what day of the week. I think that's a Friday. That's all we're going to be talking about. We're going to have to have a skip all of this shit section of the episode that we record the Saturday after the Taylor Swift album comes out because we're going to be feral about it i'm sure we apologize listeners uh we've been listening to something else um so r is quote-unquote attacked viciously by a german shepherd puppy whose owner a german shepherd puppy which by the way german shepherds are my favorite dogs um but anyway uh, whose owner, a young boy, quickly scoops her up and apologizes for her. He asks the boy and his sister if they know Julie, and they say they do, but they call her Julie Cabernet instead of Julie Grigio, which I will openly admit I did not understand the first time I read this book. I was 16. I was very green. I did not 
know anything about alcohol when I first read this book. And then in the years since then, every time I've read it, I remember there was one time specifically that I was reading it and I was like, oh, like the wine. <laughs> so they uh, they give him directions to where Julie lives and he takes off. Oh my God, Grigio is a wine. Yeah, Pinot Grigio <laughs> is a wine. I just... I don't drink, so, like... Uh, yeah, like, I don't either, really. Like, I don't ever drink. And, like, I only know the words just from, like, hearing them in passing, you know? Yeah, I didn't... Um, Grigio did Like, Cabernet, <laughs> I know, and it stood out to yeah. me. But, like, Grigio just... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, R finds Julie's house, where Julie is inside talking to another girl, uh, who is Nora. Then she walks out onto a balcony and starts rambling into a tape recorder about her thoughts and feelings. And it's the balcony monologue, okay? Yes. Let's all just accept that it's the balcony monologue and move along. So she wonders whether or not her father... She literally says, what's in a name? (laughs) When she's talking about zombies, she's like, these are just people that we call zombies. What's in a name, Julie? (laughs) Please. So she wonders whether or not her father was sad, thinking she might be dead, and says openly that she misses R. She tosses her tape recorder after a minute, and R picks it up and pockets it. He says hello to her, and she gets excited to see him, um, but insists that he should leave because he's going to get himself killed. He shrugs, of course. Uh, Nora comes outside and tells Julie to bring him into the house before someone spots him. Um, when Julie opens the door for him, she asks if she kissed him, would she turn into a zombie? Um, they have to run inside because of curfew interrupting the moment. Um, it's so cute. I'm sorry. Like one of the things that like, I always forget about this book because like the first act is not cute. (laughs) Not cute at all. No, no cuteness to be found. But then, like, once we get into the parts where, like, they both start to openly acknowledge their feelings for each other, there's so many moments where I'm just like, oh, you guys are so cute, which is good because, like, it is a romance. So, like, you have to have something romantic to build your romance on. But, like, it's easy to forget on a reread that like oh there's cuteness in this book because the first part is so very not cute (laughs) um so julie's room is beautiful chaos one wall is uh red and covered with movie tickets one wall is white and filled with authentic pieces of artwork from famous artists another is black and with only a single polaroid of her mother uh the last wall is yellow with nothing attached to it Uh, Julie says that's her quote-unquote hope wall which she'll decorate with something happy when the time comes Nora asks R a bunch of questions about being a zombie and is about to ask him whether he can still either shit or come I'm not entirely sure I think it's come but like it's Nora so it could have just been shit uh, when Julie tells her to stop interrogating him Uh, Julie asks how he got into the stadium and he explains he just walked in, which shocks the girls because the guards are usually very strict about letting people in. Julie goes to make food while Nora asks R about his eating habits. And when Julie gets back, she gives him a bite of her food. Um, It tastes disgusting to him, of course, 
But she points out he hasn't eaten human meat in a while and suggests he might be able to stop altogether. He concedes that maybe it's possible and hopes that he isn't unintentionally lying to her. Uh, he literally says, I hope I haven't just learned how to lie. He's doing so, his best. Uh, he is. <laughs> so our Julie and Nora all wind down to go to sleep for the night. Nora in Julie's bed and Julie and R on the floor. Julie at, quietly asks R if he wants to run away with her, which this is another cute moment because she's like, oh, they could just get away. Like, we don't have to think about this anymore. Um, but R says that they can't just run away because that's not going to fix anything, uh, which is literally what she said. Uh, Julie gets annoyed with him asking if he has any grand idea of how to fix things. Um, which she's halfway pissed because he literally just like quotes herself back to her. He's like, yeah, this is what you said. You said we can't just run away. And she's like, <laughs> <laughs> you said. Um, so while he dwells on this, he stares at the ceiling of her room, which has a bunch of shapes painted onto it. Then slowly he's about to, he's able to make out two letters on the ceiling, um, which is T and R um, or it might be R and T. I don't remember which order it was. But he asks Julie what the words say, and she says they're from John Lennon's Imagine. It says simply, it's easy if you try. And I know that's a cringe song now, but I do like that song. It's a good song. It's a good message on a uh, on a individual level. Yeah. Not on a societal level. But societal level things happen because of an individual level. But when you try and broadcast it to a society, it just doesn't work very well. But on an individual yeah. level, trying to make change, it, it it's just about trying. Well, societal <laughs> issues oftentimes stem from individual complacency. Yeah. You know, we as individuals form a society and tend to become complacent, right? And it's not like, I'm not saying it's your fault for being complacent, nor is it my fault for being complacent. It's just that we're all complacent and that is what causes the problem. And I mean, we've talked about this before that it it all starts with one person speaking up to make a change, you know, like it's never, it's uh, the John, there's a JFK quote that I really like. I have it on a mug. He's my favorite president, so it's not a surprise, but he said, um, anyone can make a difference and everyone should try uh because like you just because you try and you fail doesn't mean it wasn't worth it to try anyway you know like we can all make a difference we can all do something good even if it's small you know even if it's just donating ten dollars to the aspca to support their effort to save the beagles you know you're still doing something good you're still doing something that's helping to make a change and you're still removing yourself from the societal complacency right so, yes, I love I love John Lennon's Imagine. I think it's good. <laughs> I think it sends a good message. Oh, no, I don't. My uh, my point is that it worked in this yeah. instance, but it often does not work if you're at... I don't like the song. Oh, no, like the, the Gal Gadot <laughs> uh, tragedy that was the beginning of or the pandemic when all of those celebrities were singing Imagine from their billion-dollar homes. That was a tragedy. That was... Um, that was awful. Yeah. But when you listen to the song and allow it to inspire you and spur you to doing something good, that's good. That's a good thing. Chapter 13. 
Chapter 13. We're back in Perry's memories. Uh, he gets to Julie's and finds her sitting on the stairs, and they can hear her dad talking in his office upstairs, and he is very clearly drunk. And he's talking as though Julie's actually there listening to him. So I imagine he's either looking, like talking to a picture of her, or is just talking to imaginary Julie. Um, but he does talk about a picture that he has of a water park they made. And apparently it took 20 minutes of hauling buckets of water up to the top just to run it one time. And he's like, you know, it seemed like it was really worth it back then to like see you smile and happy. And then he's like, you get everything from your mother. You're, you are your mother. Why did she leave? Why was she so weak? And then Perry and Julie just leave. Uh, and they head over to Colonel Rosso's in silence. Uh, when they get there, Julie goes into the kitchen to talk to the Colonel's wife. Perry stays to talk with the Colonel. And Perry's like, my dad lied to me. He said that we were going to leave and we were going to find something better. But then he, we got here and he just died in a pointless, meaningless death without accomplishing anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he died in a construction accident. Yeah. Like, he didn't die from zombies. He died because, some, like, he was on a construction site and something fell on him. Which I, I have to imagine those mundane deaths feel so awful in a world like the one they live in. Because it's like, so you didn't die from the wars or the famine or the disease or the zombies, but you died like being crushed to death by a, a brick? Like, like what that's the fuck? gotta feel hollow. Um, but yeah, now Perry wants to join security. And the colonel was holding a book, but now he gets upset and puts it down. So he can question Perry. And Perry's just like writing his point. Cause he's like, Perry, you wanted to write. And Perry's like, writing's pointless. Why should I do it? Yeah. Uh, Talking to a man who's literally has a book, has a book in his, in his hand. hand. Yeah. <laughs> and when he does that, the colonel tells him that writing is about the value of communication and the memories that the writing helps convey. And so he holds up the book, Gilgamesh, and tells Perry how the story is still touching us despite the short, difficult lives of its creators being long forgotten. Perry, though, says that he doesn't want to remember and that there's nothing left worth saying. And I have a quote here uh, that is one of Colonel Rosso's lines, and it's, the world that birthed that story is gone. All its people are dead. But it continues to touch the present and future because someone cared enough about that world to keep it, to put it in words, to remember it. Basically, all of these people, because he's like, you know, they inscribed shit on mud tablets. They lived 40 year lives uh, toiling away. So it's like, what's the difference between our lives now and the lives they lived then in terms of 
quality of life and still they had stories to tell and pass on that have such immense meaning even now Mm -hmm. just because our lives are short and just because one day we'll be gone and like we don't know who wrote the epic of Gilgamesh right and eventually that's going to happen with all written works which sucks to think about like I mean we can only theorize that Homer wrote the Odyssey right like we think Homer wrote the Odyssey, but we're not entirely sure. And it feels weird to say that about something that's like so transcending of time that we actually aren't entirely sure who wrote it. Like we know who wrote Shakespeare's plays, but eventually we won't. Like the name William Shakespeare will fade into obscurity. And that's not me being like cynical. It's just, that's what happens as time passes. On average, your average person, like your average Joe is forgotten within three generations of their death. Like nobody remembers who they were three generations after their death. The fact that these things are so long standing and that they have crossed over these many millenniums of time is astounding. And that means that whoever wrote it, despite like the Epic of Gilgamesh, Whoever wrote this poem, this amazing, beautiful poem, if you haven't read it, you really should. It's really good. Um, Whoever wrote it, we have no idea who they were. They probably lived a shit life. They probably lived a short life, but they lived a life that had enough meaning that they felt the need to write down a story that would last for thousands and thousands of years. And that means that that story was worth writing, even though their life sucked. There is a lot of symbolism in the existence that just the existence of Gilgamesh as a story because it is a story about the search for immortality and it was written by someone who is no longer remembered but is immortalized Yes. Still in the work they created, standing as a testament to the fact that they existed. Yes. Love and it. that uh is it's like it's not just relevant to this book in general, but like and we've talked about it before, this book is incredibly relevant to just like society as a whole. But it's like people often consider the arts to be fruitless and meaningless because it's not real work or whatever, but it's like these are the things that inspire generations. You know, I just watched Jordan Peele's Nope. And it's the kind of horror movie that you watch and you're like, this is a, this is an instant classic. This is going to be a movie people talk about for years. There's one specific scene in the movie Nope that is so iconic that I am like, this is going to be taught about in cinema classes. 10, 20, 30 years from now, because it's so visually stunning. And it's that alone makes it worth it. You know, this is, it's not the epic of Gilgamesh, but this is an incredibly stunning piece of cinematography that was created purely because Jordan Peele was like, I want to do it. I want to make it. And he made it and now it exists. And it's going to be talked about for generations to come. Like, it's like the scene that I'm talking about has the same, like, I like iconography as like the the scene from the night, a Nightmare on Elm Street in which Johnny Depp gets swallowed up and there's a giant explosion of blood and that movie came out 40 years 38 40 years ago 
And we're still talking about that. And that same, like, intensely, like, incredible kind of scene just happened in Jordan Peele's Nope, which came out this past summer. And, like, that makes it worth it. Like, that makes it worth telling stories to know that they're going to be remembered, to know that they're going to inspire people. I know for sure that that scene from Nope was inspired by that scene from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's like, that's why. That's why we create. That's why we we never stop creating. It doesn't matter that Wes Craven is dead because Jordan Peele is still creating films and is still being inspired by what Wes Craven made. Okay, never stop creating art. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> art is valuable and it will always be valuable and never stop creating it just because life sucks. Um, my so, one note, <laughs> my one note. My, oh, did you have something to say? I had another note. Go ahead, please. I just, just my dear friend, that Rosso is a one of the best foils I have ever seen. Yes, in literature <laughs> because he is in every way opposed to Julie's dad. Yes, and it's funny because they've been best friends for so long and honestly you could even say it's it's like a foil triangle with Perry, Julie's dad and Rosso where Julie's dad has all the things in him that Rosso does and he suppresses it and we see them come out in these little lines and these uh, some of the information we get about his backstory in a couple chapters um but he suppressed it to the point of being not even really human anymore. Perry hasn't suppressed his, he's lost it entirely. It's like he's lost his ability to be human. And then we see Rosso, who has experienced all of the same things that Julie's dad has because he was with him through all of the wars that they were in. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, he, they're old military buddies. Yeah, he, they, they have pictures of them through multi, all different wars in Europe and stuff. And so he's been through all these same life experiences. And instead of coming out the other side saying that nothing matters except surviving, he's coming out the other side and saying, basically, the only point of surviving is all of the beauty that you can find in life. It is yes. these stories, it is creating, it is the human experience. Yes, exactly. Survival isn't enough. You need to more than survive in order to live a fulfilled existence. Even if your existence is short, even if it's hard, even if it sucks, if you don't find meaning in that, then what was the point of surviving at all? You know, the survival of the species is great, but like you have to have something to leave behind or it was all meaningless. We have a drive to ensure our species survives, mm -hmm. but we also have the ability for critical thought. And you have to stop and think, why do I want my species to survive? And if the only reason you want your species to survive is based on an instinct that you have from evolution, yeah. that's stupid. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's there's that phrase, that's what separates us from the apes. And that's literally it. If you look at apes in the wild, male apes will take over a group of apes and they will kill the offspring 
of the other of the previous male because they don't view those offspring as being strong enough to carry on their uh their species because if they were able to kill the father figure of the group then of course those offspring are not going to be strong enough so they will kill all of those make a bunch of new ones that they see as fit to carry on their species right and i mean i mean the way that the characters in this book are acting the ones who are more like general grigio are they're approaching that point where they're basically like if you're not strong there's no use in us even protecting you which is a problem they're going that's full not humanity <laughs> that's that's just we do base instinct we see humans do stuff like that we've seen it in the past mm. it's been a cultural thing we've seen Humans do it's eugenics. I would say really terrible things during wars and genocides, but the the separating factors that enough of us come together as a group and say, "Wow, that's not okay," mm-hmm. to try and stop it from happening. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, so I had a note here, a very loud all caps note that just says, "I'm sorry." but I'm going to talk about the Game of Thrones writers. So a large part of this book is Isaac Marion waxing poetic about the importance of authors. And it's it can be seen as self-aggrandizing. It is his debut novel. So it's not like he's like harrowing himself as like a longstanding author and saying how important he is. No, but I think it's that it, I guess you could construe it as self-aggrandizing. I, I, yeah. I understand fully what you're saying, but it's like, it's one of the things where it's almost like if you're a scientist who yes. is about to like, who is studying cancer and how to cure it. And you're like, science is extremely important, especially medical science to yeah. the survival of our species. It's like, you're not self-aggrandizing. That's just a fact. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> Um, and I don't feel that it's a self-aggrandizing. And but he, here's the thing: if it is, he deserves it because he's very good at what he oh, does. Oh yeah, but it's like it's one thing. Like <laughs> if you're a writer, a lot of times you are yeah. writing because you believe these things about what oh, you're yeah, creating. For sure. So a huge part of this is him talking about the importance of authors and storytelling, um, seeing the importance of telling stories and putting art out into the world. So, during Game of Thrones Season 8, do you remember the final episode? Like, in the midnight hour of... It's not even the 11th hour. It's the midnight hour of Game of Thrones Season 8, the last 20 minutes of of the entire show. Tyrion Lannister goes off on a tangent about how the most important people in society are not soldiers, they're not kings, they're not rich men... They are storytellers. <laughs> because for some reason, the writers decided to self-aggrandize being like, we're the most important part of this show. Because without us, this show wouldn't exist. Even though they didn't write most of the source material themselves, they just kind of stitched it together in a way that was good for television. But so like, they also said at one point, one of the writers famously said that themes are for eighth grade essays. 
or eighth eighth grade book reports. So like he doesn't really believe in themes and he doesn't believe in symbolism and stuff like that. And then decided to have the the talking head of their show, Tyrion Lannister, go off and start talking about how important it is to tell stories and that stories will live on forever. And while I agree with what was said, I find it so fucking ridiculous and out of place within the context of Game of Thrones that it makes me angry that they decided to have him talk about that in the last 20 minutes of their series that they butchered the ending of so they could go right for Star Wars. But when I was reading Je- uh, Colonel Ross Rosso's stuff, that's all I could think about, but like in a comparative way, because like Isaac spends a huge part of this book talking about how important it is to always tell stories and to always create, right? But you can tell he means it like passionately and humbly. He's like, it's important because we need to make sure we're passing on creativity and happiness to future generations he's not saying it because he's like and i'm great because i'm an author yeah it's not that that's what i'm doing he thinks he's great he thinks it's something that everybody should be doing and yes and should care about yes and this is the beginning of my verbal essay on why warm bodies should be the next HBO prestige television series <laughs> rather than doing more Game of Thrones spinoffs. So, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go on about it. But I do think that is a thought. That is an actual thought that I have in my brain. It was so, fun fact, um, Warm Bodies was sold to, I believe, HBO back in 2019. But there hasn't been any updates since it was sold to them. Actually, I think it might have been Universal. It was sold to some big name content producer back in 2019, but there hasn't been any word since then. So I'm assuming it's not happening, which is very sad because there's a whole series now and it would make a really beautiful show. So much like Game of Thrones fans... (laughs) <laughs> after season eight ended, Aris left floating in darkness and asks Perry if he's trying to reverse engineer his life. And Perry tells him to be quiet. Uh, and there's this... The in-betweens on the memories or like when the memories end and before R actually wakes up are interesting because it's like he's conscious during them but he's still in this it's it very much seems like it's an out of body thing yeah despite him being asleep um because he describes the space it's like he's floating in darkness but it's like it tastes like tears like as if perry wants to cry but he can't yeah uh so then r wakes up first before anyone else and he sees Nora sleeping with the book she's been studying and he recognizes the cover as Grey's Anatomy so he takes it and leaves the room to study it by himself and he can't read it but he analyzes the images and diagrams and he starts remembering Latin words uh, he knew from his life so it's like he knows what all this stuff is he just which suggests that he might have some have had some medical training of some sort because if you showed me that book i wouldn't know what the fuck was going on yeah um uh 
but he hopes that he can fix whatever is wrong with him by understanding the bodies that he spent so long, as he says, violating. Um, and so I think this is... There's a few purposes to what he's doing here. I think he does kind of want to understand the body more, especially with what's happening to him. Yeah. He's trying to understand his past since he's seeing things he recognizes. But I think he also is struggling to come to terms with the things he's done. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost like he is engaging in self-punishment for his actions yeah he entered he's now entered into the world of the things that he used to use for food you know it's like if you there's really no other way to explain it because zombies and humans are the same just a little different but it's like if you suddenly were living amongst a herd of buffalo and I was a buffalo, and I could and understand the buffalo. buffalo. Yes, you were just a different kind of buffalo who had previously eaten other buffalo. And now you're like, fuck, I can't eat all these buffalo. They have buffalo feelings. <laughs> buffalo <laughs> trees. But I love buffalo wings. Honey, <laughs> <laughs> I have great news for you. Buffalo wings do not contain buffalo. Oh shit! They're just I've from been buffalo, lied New York. to. I've been lied to. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. <laughs> oh my god! No, do not start that sentence. I literally, <laughs> like, I've seen that sentence. I understand the concept that the buffalo, yeah. buffalo, buffalo, buffalo sentences. I cannot parse the words even when I like. Oh no! Not I'm, at all. This is nonsense. <laughs> um. Yeah, so then R places the book back on Nora, heads out to the balcony, and watches the busy streets and wonders what it is the people are doing down there. Because he's like, in the airport, we moved, but it was like we were just moving. Here, all these people yeah. are moving, and it's busy, but like, what are they doing? It's like a beehive. Mm-hmm. You can watch it, and you're like, I don't understand. Yeah. Because in the airport, it's almost like the zombies just move around so they don't get stiff. Yeah. But here, like, there's clear purpose, which is different. Does the rigor mortis uh, set back in after you've lost it? Like, can you do get rigor mortis, then you lose it, and if you don't move, you get rigor mortis again? I like to think that's the case, because I remember when R fell asleep that first time, and he woke up, and he was all, like, achy and stuff. It could be interpreted as he had just, like, he fell asleep on the floor, so that's not very comfortable. But, like, I mean, I've slept on the floor and not woken up all achy. So I like? like? (laughs) I used to, so I get very tense if people move around in the bed next to me. So if I, like, if I had to share, like, a hotel bed with someone, I would often wind up sleeping on the floor. Because I would rather just, like, sleep flat on my back on the floor and wake up with a little bit of back pain than have to, like, deal with someone else, like, fidgeting a bunch in their sleep. I'm very lucky that Brandon is relatively still when he sleeps. Oh my god. Fun fact. Another thing I learned from studying my uh, medical reports 
is that my L5 vertebrae is fused to my sacrum. No. Uh, which is, no. it's, it's pretty common. Yeah. But it, it causes. It sound comfortable. No, it actually results in lots of lower back pain fairly often. So I was like, oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so R hears the girls talking and goes back inside. And Julie's like, so what do you plan to do now that you're, you know, here? And he's like, well, I want to I want to see the city. And I want to understand how humans that are alive live. And Julie's like, no, you're you're stupid. And Nora's like, nah, he's almost human. Come on, let's just dress him up. And eventually they agree to try and make him look alive and then go to the city. So yeah, uh, so they attempt to dress him in Julie's boyish clothes, but he rips all of them. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, she's very she's dainty. she's tiny. Yeah, she's, she's dainty. dainty. <laughs> uh, so she's he like showers. Steffy. She's just little. She's just little. <laughs> so he showers instead while they fix all the tears and holes in his clothes. And it's the first shower he's had, and he doesn't know how long. It's like, it's all just like, I have holes in me, but there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Just all this filth washing off of him. Uh, and they get him, when he finished, and they get get him dressed, they put makeup on him and do his hair. And uh, Nora says he's hot, and he wants to steal her, steal him from the night, for the night, from Julie. And Julie is very possessive of yeah. her Zombofriend? Zomfriend? Um, <laughs> also, she puts, she's like, sorry, and puts a band-aid right over the, the hole in his forehead where she threw her knife. Um, they're at first concerned somebody might notice his eyes, but then Nora's like, nobody in this city looks at each other. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that's... uh. That tells you something about yeah. the, the society. I mean, it does also, like, how often are you, like, gazing long into the eyes of the people that you meet out in society? Like, I try oh. to make eye contact, but, like... Oh, no. I'm, I'm autistic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, like, same. <laughs> like, I don't like looking people in the eyes. I've learned to do it, but, like, mm-hmm. any, every time, like, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm just staring in their eyes, and the whole time I'm thinking, like, is this what I'm supposed to do? This is kind yeah. of uncomfortable. Well, Why am I like, doing this? The, I I still haven't solidified how much eye contact is too too much eye contact because it's like yeah. I struggle to make eye contact, but then I'm like, am I doing it too much? Is this weird? Exactly. Should I'm I like play? maybe maybe they Should feel I like I'm staring play? at them like too hard. Are they yeah. uncomfortable with how I'm yeah. staring at them? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's okay. We never need to make eye contact. Nope. <laughs> we don't we don't know when we're looking at each other. No. <laughs> I don't know when you're looking at me and when you're looking at you, and it's the same for you. <laughs> yep. It's great. Yeah, no, fuck looking at people in the eyes. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. Let's just look at each other's shirts instead. Okay, but see the problem is then it's like I'm looking at people's boobs and Oh, okay, you're right. What was I thinking? Um just look at my nose. There we go. Great. Anyway, um, so chapter 14, Julie and Nora show R the city, explaining the troubling conditions their people are living under. 
Nora laments that people should stop popping out kids for a little while while they don't uh, for a little while so they don't run out of food but Julie says it's beautiful that life continues to grow despite the horror show of a world they're living in I agree with Nora <laughs> I look I I understand where they're both coming from I do get Julie's point that mm-hmm. life has like people have to have kids for if you're trying to ensure that yeah. humanity continues so yeah like yeah, but like you can't just yeah. We have advanced enough as a society at this point that we should be able to reasonably say maybe now's not the right time collectively yes. in a situation like this. <laughs> Look, we're not proponents of eugenics, but sometimes you got to like look at the world around you and say now is not the time. And there's a very big difference between I want to control what kids are born and yeah. what traits they have and maybe we should just not have kids for a little bit. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, I guess it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you look at something like what China had where they had the the one child rule for like 40 years or something like that. And that resulted in a lot of problems. Yeah. So China is deeply overpopulated in their city centers, not in like the rural areas, but it's extremely overpopulated. And so for like 40 years, there was this law that was like, you can only have one kid per family, right? And that led to a lot of issues because of inherent sexism within society in which people would pop out their first kid it would be a girl they would abandon her on the streets because they need a boy to carry on the family name so then that was leading to a harsh uptick in the amount of boys who were entering into society and a downtick in the number of girls who were entering into society and it caused a lot of problems now i'm not saying that had the societal sexism not existed that would have been a better policy i mean it would have like literally objectively speaking it would it would have been better if people didn't care if they had a boy or a girl but also like you can't there's no like one blanket solution like they thought okay we're overpopulated that means that we need to cut down on the number of kids being born every generation for at least a couple of generations in order to um ensure that we do not just run out of space so they were like okay um every family can only have one kid boom problem solved but there's a lot of other external factors yeah yes and there's a lot of nuance that you're missing in that conversation it gets a lot easier if you say nobody can have kids period um but (laughs) yes if you are going to in some way limit people having children you have to ensure that there are no external factors affecting it Uh and it's an issue you see cropping up now in a lot of different advanced Mm quote-unquote cultures um with Japan and Korea you see a very low like distressingly low birth rate 
Yeah. And they have initiatives like paying parents for children. Like Korea just said they're going to triple payouts for people having kids, I think. Um, but it's not tackling the root of the issue of why people aren't having children. And it's yeah. because of the social aspects of the culture to do with mm-hmm. things like work and obligations and things like that or then yeah. with China like having the inherent sexism play a role in it or if you come to the US where people are like well, millennials and Gen Xers aren't having kids and it's like a lot of people aren't having kids not because they don't want kids some of us are like us, us. <laughs> yeah like some of us just don't want kids but some people okay hold on one second i don't know why it's receiving so much audio for me but some people do want kids and they can't have them because they're like our economy is shit we can't afford kids yeah and these same people that are up in arms about them not having children are the ones that are endorsing policies that encourage those people to not have kids. And so there's a lot of nuance to it, but I feel like in this situation, it's very different because we, they even talk about in these chapters, how nobody looks at color anymore or race. Mm -hmm. We're actually about to get to that. Yeah. Uh, but it's these concepts of divisions within humanity don't exist because the division is living and dead yeah and so you don't have these racial divisions you don't seem to have the socioeconomic divisions yeah or doesn't even seem like they have sexism no i mean they do they do on a predatory individual basis, yes. but not on like a societal basis. They're not barring women from doing anything. Everybody is just a person. They've, it, it's almost like when you, it's, if you took a modern society and let it get too far, push too far to the edge, the end result would be having a large enough group of people saying that none of these things that we've cared about on a societal level actually matter that you just stop acknowledging them you stop acknowledging race you stop because there are too many more important things to worry about and when you're in a situation like that you don't have as many factors that are going to affect telling people don't have kids (laughs) yes um and like obviously in a situation like this where they don't really know what the future is gonna hold i don't think saying nobody can have kids is a great idea because eventually you're going to get to a point if you have not solved those societal issues where everybody who would have had kids is now too old to have kids and now everybody's dead because like there's no more producing any offspring but i do agree that like you need some kind of controlled system yes like there needs to be and like i hate to i hate to be that person but like maybe the idea is like if you're gonna have a kid you should only be having one like 
And like, ob and obviously, like we said, they don't seem to have societal sexism within their stadiums. So they're not gonna face that same issue that China faced. They're gonna just be like, I had a daughter. Good, we did it. <laughs> we procreated, we made a child. And it's, it's such, there's no real parallel to this in the real yeah. world because it's not a, well, they can expand yeah. to meet their new needs. They're, they live in a stadium. Yeah, there aren't alternative options here. You have to do something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, anyway, so uh, they discuss the world collapsing, indicating the last unified country, possibly Sweden, uh, recently dissolved. Nora says heritage doesn't really matter anymore because soon everyone will just be gray, AKA soon everyone's just gonna be a zombie and none of it's gonna matter anymore. Um, because Julie, because Julie's like, oh, I think it was Sweden. And Nora's like, ah, oh, who gives a shit? And they talk about heritage very briefly. And uh, Julie's like, I don't know, wasn't your dad from like Ethiopia? And we find out later that her dad is like extreme, was like extremely abusive. And, you know, so she probably doesn't really give a shit about him anyway. But then she's like, yeah, he doesn't remember Ethiopia and I've never been there. And he's dead So, now. And he's dead. So who gives a shit? And I think that gets down to an important part about culture to begin with is culture is literally just a shared system of customs and beliefs in mm -hmm. a group. So there is an, there's a very big importance to culture. Uh, but at the end of the world, preservation of original culture is not as important as creating a new culture with those you're living with. Yes, exactly. And it's like, that's not to say that you can't remember the way things used to be, but it's like, what does it matter if you're from Ethiopia or you're from Germany when there's zombies <laughs> like you know what i mean like cultures it's, it's, you know are preserved now because a lot of them were actively attacked and we live yes. in a world where people have the ability to preserve them and remember what mm -hmm. was um in a world where every day is life and death you don't really have that luxury anymore, especially when yeah. culture is something that is constantly evolving. The whole point of culture is to change with time. Yes. <laughs> and that's not to say you shouldn't try to preserve the memories of what was. No. Obviously you should. We've been talking about the fact that you should this whole time. But like, it is a really interesting aspect to this society that they've built within the book that like, they basically are just like a... a like if they they say that soon everyone will just be gray anyway, referring to um, the zombies. But like I think a big part of that metaphor also extends to the fact that gray is often used to symbolize when things meld together, and so their society is already pretty gray because they don't they don't have, have anything divisions like that. Well, they don't have anything, and that's part of the problem is. The, the greater problem within their society now isn't that they can't remember their old cultures. It's that they can't create a new one because they have been stopped basically at every turn. 
I don't drink. You don't really drink. But nope. the reality, like, they talk about in one of these chapters that alcohol is banned outright. Yeah. No alcohol. And obviously there's people that drink in this book. We know that. But alcohol oftentimes is a very big part of culture, specifically pre-technology age culture. Yeah. I, I mean, to alcohol in like a cultural sense often symbolizes exuberance. Yes. Like when you remove the ability to and i this is not just me saying that like people can't be exuberant without alcohol but obviously it's like, we don't drink <laughs> yes obviously we don't drink and we're very exuberant people but like on a societal level the sharing of ales is like often like goes hand in hand with the idea of having happiness within your society which is weird but like and i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean like it's they're called spirits for a reason. Let me let me <laughs> let me sociology this for a second. Go ahead, please. So drinking. Are you about to sociology explain something to me, the person who literally studied sociology? <laughs> Actually, it'd be more interesting because you might be able to confirm or deny what I'm saying. Yeah, go because ahead. Because here's my go thought ahead. process behind it. When you're drinking, you're not prepared to kill somebody. You're not <laughs> expecting to be ambushed. Drinking means you're safe. It means you're yeah. comfortable. And it is then, it goes hand in hand with relaxation and with being in a space where you can share and you can communicate freely because you're not under threat. And so this idea of being of drinking being social is because you are only drinking when you are safe to drink. Exactly. And that's not a system that they have. They don't have books. They don't have reading. They don't have writing. They don't have theater. They don't have sports. Nora has a thrown together volleyball team apparently that she did for kids to try and keep them entertained. But they don't have like the basic, basic aspects of pre-industrial societies, music, theater, writing, even if it wasn't for everybody, if it was for an elite group, you have music, theater, writing, sports, festivals, drinking. Yeah. And they have none of that. What, yeah. what are they? <laughs> when you look at it from that perspective, it, because they briefly touch on why there's no drinking. And yes. in essence, what you've said is very correct because you drink when you're safe. They are never safe. So they cannot drink because they can't drink in a place where they are always heavily armed because they need to be ready to be attacked at any given moment. Therefore, they remove that one basic aspect of you're not safe and it will never be safe for you to have a drop of alcohol. So we're taking that away. You can't have that. And in a way, all of those other things fall into that same category. You go to the theater, you let your guard down because you're in a theater. I mean, maybe not if you're seeing The Dark Knight. I was about to say, maybe if you're, you're not in America. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you go to the theater, you feel safe. You're reading a book, you feel safe. Those are all things 
that like luxuries, entertainment are all characteristics of a society in which its citizens are able to experience that kind of safety. So like they have to take all of that away because you can't, I don't want to say they have to, this is from their perspective, they have to take all of that away because you're not safe. You are never safe. So you don't ever get to experience those lapses when you can just live in luxury. Even if luxury is as simple as sitting down and reading a book over a glass of wine. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Societally, it's it's like you can tell a lot about a society's structure based on the revelry of its people. And when a society has no revelry, it's um it's lost some basic functions. Yeah, this is a disturbing lack of any kind of revelry. <laughs> yes. Uh you see the only aspects of revelry exist like inside Julie's bedroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the reason that her room is so colorful. We all are on the same page, right? <laughs> that her room is basically an oasis amongst this hellscape of gray. Everything um, is gray. His hair is... <laughs> so they pass by what used to be called Jewel Street, but is now actually named julie street um that's the one street that has an actual name um but r couldn't read it earlier um they say that her dad named that street julie street when they opened up a school for the children uh you know she says he's capable of being like sentimental sometimes um so they avoid the training center because it's obviously they're like oh yeah they're murdering zombies in there so let's not go look at that uh, Julie then leads them out to the cemetery just beyond the gates, which she indicates she visits every single day. Um, uh, Nora's like, are you sure you want to go there today? And she's like, I go there every day. Today is Tuesday, which is a day. So let's go. Um, she walks to a particularly grandiose grave marked by a marble angel. And Julie says this grave is for her mother whom she previously said, quote unquote, left when she was 12. She said it like four or five times throughout the book. She explains her mother lost her will to keep fighting um, and wandered out into the city on her own. When she was found, she was in pieces, but none of her wound up being buried. Um, Julie says her mother couldn't find meaning in staying alive only for her. And Julie tells her very firmly that she is very much worth living for, which is so beautiful because we know as the readers that R is literally in the process of coming back from the dead because he loves her. Like he has such great love for her that he is willing to no longer be dead, to fight the like laws of physics and life just to be alive for her, which I love the trope of, a character showing another character devotion that they have never known in their entire life. Uh, because, I mean, if you think about it, this is a direct parallel to Perry, who, like, lost all will to live and couldn't even find it in him to survive for her, which we'll get into in, a, in an upcoming chapter. Um, so R very poorly covers Frank Sinatra, uh, which cheers Julie up just a little bit. Then the trio goes to leave. R spots a tombstone that makes him halt 
and suddenly he's sucked in by a memory. He symbolically falls into, quote-unquote, into the grave, but he doesn't actually. Well, symbolically, but we're gonna... <laughs> things are about to get weird. Oh, things are about to get extremely weird. And I'm gonna... I'm gonna have some theories. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so chapter 15. We're back in Perry time. Uh, he wakes up the morning of his first mission as a team leader and stops himself from even kissing Julie goodbye because she's laying there, still sleeping. Uh, he intends for this, which is the second anniversary of his dad's death, to be the last day of his life. So he goes to see Julie's father for his badge and stuff, and he asks why they're bothering to survive. But Julie's dad, it's like he's about to say something. Like, Perry sees him about to say something, and then he just shuts down. He's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is an appropriate conversation. You need to leave. And that's really problematic on a few levels, but one of them is the fact that he's sending this guy out to lead a mission in a dangerous area while this guy is asking what the purpose of doing it even is, why they're bothering to survive. And he's like, yeah, I don't need to say anything about, I don't need to be concerned at all. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so after going to see Rosso and getting the paperwork with his team assignments, Perry sees Nora, who stalks, who stops him to talk and tells him that they'll all be going to the orchard. Ooh la la. That night uh, when he gets back because they don't want him to be alone again like he was the year before uh, for the anniversary of his dad's death. But then he's evasive about it. And he's like, well, we're going to be out late blah 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 uh, so she asks if he's looked at his paperwork yet for his team which he has not because guess what he doesn't plan on giving a fuck who's on the team uh, and she's like yeah because Julie and I both signed up to join you yesterday is that going to be a problem asshole because Nora knows exactly what he intended to do and then Perry runs away uh, and this section land because before it was like Perry wanted to die and blah blah but this lands Perry solidly in piece of shit territory for me yeah because he fully planned to lead an entire team of people into a dangerous area and let himself but presumably all of them get killed so that he didn't have to keep living. Yeah. It would be one thing if he was just a member of a team that was going out. So that, like, feasibly he could, like, wander off and go be by himself to commit suicide by zombie. But he is the team leader. Like, he's the one in charge. He can't just, like, go off by himself. He's leading his team to their deaths. Which sucks. That's like, tough. we've talked a lot about the different ways that people handle their depression. But this is the difference between driving your car off a bridge and crashing a plane full of people into a river. Yeah, this is where 
I don't have sympathy for you anymore yeah. because it's not tragic what you did. It's a dick move. You yeah. are a murderer. There's a small part of me that, like, there's two options here, right? Either this is a device to make R more sympathetic because he killed this guy who we now know is kind of a dickbag. Or Perry was so far gone that he no longer cared about what he did to other people, especially oh. if those were not other people that he personally cared about. I'm heavily leaning into the second. Oh, yeah. Like, because he th- he only reacts about the members of the team when he finds out that it's Julie and Nora. Yeah, it's he doesn't... It is literally the same thing as dealing with zombies. It's that he only sees Julie and Nora as human and everybody else is just a thing. Yeah, just another cog in the machine. So, yeah. So, this memory ends and... R feels like he's buried in the dirt down in the grave where Perry's remains are. Um, And he feels a hand digging through the dirt to grab him. And it's Perry. And he's like, hello. Um, And then we switch and they are now in a 747, in the 747 that R lived in. And Perry is flying the plane. And he tells R that he wanted to be com- wanted him to be comfortable for this chat, so he chose a place that R's comfortable with. Uh, R tries to apologize for killing him again, and Perry tells him that they're way past that point now, um, and that he's basically the younger version of himself again, and not the quote-unquote wiser, older Perry. Um, R asks if this is if he's actually speaking to Perry right now, and Perry's like, "Does it does it matter, bro? Like we're talking." Um, yeah. And R asks why Perry wants to help him, and Perry's like, "We're both victims of the same disease. You might have killed me, but you and I are both victims in this." And in the end their souls and everything they are is just twisted up and combined into one. Mm -hmm. Um, So finally, Perry tells R that they need to discuss their project, that despite all of the optimistic thoughts R keeps having, there is no plan, and they're about to fly into a very dark storm. Um, Symbolism, flying a plane, Mm-hmm. Um, so as they discuss this R hears Julie's voice trying to snap him out of the dream uh, so she's ta- she's standing next to him above the grave talking to him and Perry tells R that he needs to be ready to take and not just hope and that he's responsible for protecting Julie because she offered Perry everything and he pissed on it his words um, I mean, it's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not letter, not literally. But like, yeah. But you know, she she would have given him the the stars and the moon, but he was just like, nope. So the seven forty seven is crashing as they are. They're in a nosedive as this conversation is ending, and when they get sight of the ground, 
R sees that they are hurtling towards the spot where he is standing. It's his body there in front of them and Julie. And the moment they collide, he finds himself back in his body. Now, we have the floating in the darkness uh, the night before. We have floating in darkness in the earth where Perry's grave is and feeling Perry grab him. And then we have this literal like out of body experience crashing back into himself. We already have a lot of weird shit going on this book. And I'm beginning to wonder if these aren't like, cause at first it was like, they're symbolic. And now I'm like, but are they symbolic? Because it almost feels like there is a distinction between the physical body and the mind or soul happening here. Yeah. Where he is literally leaving his body. Yeah. Like spiritually and that he is elsewhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, if it is, honestly, it's one of those where I think it's up to interpretation. Like, do you actually think that he is physically having like a conversation with Perry's soul or is this just his own brain's way of reckoning with this life that he took because never before has he had to come face to face with like the physical embodiment of the fact that he took a life yeah right like he's literally looking at a headstone that was made and and planted in the ground for the person that he killed right and like yeah he's been like with julie this whole time physically dealing with the fact that he killed her boyfriend but like now he's having to look at an eternal reminder that he took a life right he didn't just eat a cow he brained it (laughs) and and he took he stole its life force when you think about it as like a metaphor for like literally eating meat like we are siphoning the life force of the animals that we oh, are it's not just eating meat right? literally eating anything we're siphoning the life force of that yes. thing yeah like you're taking energy you are getting your energy from another thing it's easier when talking about eating meat because you can actually imagine it as a living thing yeah. you know like that's why I struggle so I don't I really don't eat uh, pig meat because they're extremely intelligent like much more so than like other uh animals that we typically eat uh and it's because i like i can't imagine like ending the life of something that is so sentient and now r is having to like struggle with the fact that like oh my fucking god like not only am i like metaphysically aware of the life that i took because i've been living his memories over the course of this entire book but like holy shit there's a memorial to this man (laughs) literally right here and to this point julie still doesn't know that r killed perry like he's the only one he's living in the prison of his mind with the fact that he killed that man so (laughs) i think this book might be one of those stories that lives in the weird place between metaphor and symbolism and reality yes where unless explained you don't 
you never get an answer because yes. there's so much in it like with the bonies and whatever the hell they are whatever it is that happened to the dead it's all of it is meant to be a symbol for something else mm-hmm. already and so you get lost in is this how much of this is symbolic and how much of it is a literal telling of what's happening yeah and it reminds me of seeing i was reading a twitter thread the other day where people with uh schizophrenia were talking about hallucinations and they were talking about how it is real the things they're seeing are real because it's what it's affecting their mind the same yes. way it affects anyone else who acts. It's firing off the synapses in their brain, which makes it real. But it's not part of shared reality. Yeah. And so this book really toes that line between real and shared reality. Yeah, um, absolutely. I like to think of a lot of this stuff the same way that I think of like musicals, where it's like in the reality of the show, they're not actually singing. <laughs> it's just a style of storytelling. Like, Dear Evan Hansen is not actually breaking out into song during his friend's memorial. I don't know why that was the first musical that came to my brain. I do not like that musical. Alphaba oh. is not actually singing Defying Gravity. She's just explaining that she's going to defy gravity. That's just the means through which we're telling the story, okay? These hallucinations are just our bursting out into <laughs> I would. I would go see Warm Bodies the Musical. Warm Bodies the Musical. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We were bo- I don't know if we've talked about it before. We definitely have, but like in case you forgot, we were both like massive theater nerds our whole lives. So You never escape it. No, you don't. <laughs> so Julie asks what happened and R blames it on daydreaming. Outside the graveyard. Okay, so this is another interesting part of it because Perry tells him that right outside the stadium, or uh, right outside the cemetery, I mean, uh, he's about to face his first challenge. Yeah. In this dark storm that they're flying into. Yeah. How does he know? Okay, see, now that's part of, I forgot, that was part of one of the things I wanted to say. Immediately after leaving the graveyard, the trio runs into Julie's father with Russo and another guy. And... This is part because we talked about the bonies last time, how I said I feel like there's something, some ancient part of humanity made manifest. Yeah. Um, and then in this experience that R just had, Perry seemed to have knowledge of what was coming. I think if we're going for a slightly literal translate or interpretation of events, uh, this might be playing with the concept that exists in some belief systems that there is not time uh, yeah. beyond death, that the soul or spirit or energy or whatever exists outside of that and perceives all of the events happening in time as a whole, meaning it has knowledge of the future and the past. And so 
the bonies and this precognition almost that Perry has could just be related to the fact that there is no concept of time existing post-death. They already are aware of everything. The Bonies like to say that this is always has, this is how it's always been and how it will always be. Yeah, but that's because they don't experience time in the same way. I like that theory. I've never thought about it that way, but I do like it. It adds another layer of mystique. Mystique. Um, yeah, uh, Julie's father tries to call in R as the man who snuck in the day before, but Julie says that R is Nora's boyfriend from another settlement and is just visiting, and this just highlights how shitty of a dad he is, because any decent parent's first instinct would not be seeing their child and then immediately trying to get somebody in trouble in this situation. Yeah. Like, this guy who is walking around with your kid, you would not immediately be like, ah, oh, detain him. Like, what? That's not a normal Could thing. You maybe, <laughs> like, clearly she's walking around with him. Like, I don't care if he just, like, broke it, if he just, like, wandered into the stadium. I understand that, like, there's, like, protocols in place, but, like, they're literally arresting him for unlawful entry. And he's like walking around with Julie yeah, like, and Nora. So it's talk like, to your I child. don't know, maybe ask who he is. <laughs> like That's not how parent. <laughs> yeah. That's not how good parent. Um, but yeah, so he decide, he does decide to just let it go after Julie explains. Uh, but he gets upset with Russo for, with wait. Is that Russo? Yeah, he spelled his name yeah. wrong twice. Okay, with Russo. <laughs> Uh, when he refers to Julie by the joke last name Cabernet. Um, and as the war daddies leave, the trio decides to go to the orchard for a drink and R ponders what kind of flood might be coming because Perry referred to a flood when they were having a conversation. He's like, is this going to be a cleansing and purifying water or is this going to be destruction? Um, and then he begins to feel the ground shake beneath his feet as though all the dead are trying to claw their way to the surface. And is this symbolism? Is this just him talking about his emotions? Is this an actual thing that he can feel because he's dead and he can feel the dead? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> maybe it's just, they're in California. So maybe it's just an earthquake. <laughs> Just a little earthquake. I don't know. Wait, are they in California? Yeah. Okay, see, I thought they were in New York because Julie had referenced being in New York and they said they're at City Stadium. And so I looked up City Stadium and what I got was City Field where the Mets play in New York. You know what? Give me just a second. I'll edit this out, but give me just a second. Okay, how about this? How about okay. we come back to it next week? That's a good point. Give me some time to study and see if I can figure out where it actually is. And then we will report back. But I am 99% sure that it's in California. But anyway. 
It is some coastal city, obviously, because yeah, that's well, and that's coastal, and that's why I thought New York too is because it's on the coast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, all right, chapter sixteen is yours. Julian, Nora lead Julian? R to the orchard. Julian, huh? Julian, huh? Julie, and <laughs> Nora. Lead R to the Orchard, which is a pub the stadium residents have hidden up a couple complicated series of steps and across catwalks. There is no alcohol, but there are bar activities and sports games playing on a loop on several TVs, um, like old games. Um, R looks around the room, giving a lot of thought to the skeletons hiding inside the patrons of the bar. Uh, He realizes while he dwells that the bonies are just relics of what once were people but long ago gave up on retaining any shred of their humanity. Um, he kind of see he kind of realizes this because he's seeing evidences of people like these are just regular people. They're not zombies, but in a way, they're still starting to gray and decay, similarly to the way that he sees the bonies. And obviously, he's not saying like, "Oh, these people are going to become bonies," but he's more just like, "Oh." I understand these people are basically becoming bonies without actually physically being them. Um, he wonders if their morbidly iron grip on the state of the world could be derailed by a flash of color, a hint of hope, and a lot of change. Um, so Julie disappears with their drinks at some point, and Nora points out a few details about Julie, like it being important that she took R to her mother's grave. Um, Nora says R reminds her of Perry and R suddenly admits that he killed Perry. Like he's literally like oh I killed him. (laughs) He's Uh, like I need to to, was it uh, sew my mouth shut because I don't know how to not tell the truth. (laughs) Yes. Nora surprises him by saying she already knew that and she forgives him because it wasn't him that killed Perry it was the plague. She has a similar perspective to Perry where she's like you as a person did not commit this act you like the fact that you were a zombie forced you to do that i um i actually see this as very similar to when a child is born and the mother dies in a you mm -hmm. this child did not kill this parent the parent died as a result of the situation but the child didn't do anything but then you see people that are like, no, it's the, like that hold that against the kid. Like it was their fault. Yeah. Um, she says Julie would probably forgive him too if he told her. She explains that she was the girl Perry once cheated on Julie with. But Julie wound up forgiving her because in the grand scheme of things, it didn't seem to matter. She says him killing Perry wasn't a choice he made because he didn't know he had a choice. Which is so good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Julie returns with her newly spiked drinks. Uh, she stole some alcohol from R's plane. Um, and when R downs a glass, he gets immediately drunk. So as you probably know, alcohol filters into your blood. And R does not have a lot of blood moving through his veins. In fact, he has basically none at all so it goes straight to his head 
Um, because of the drinks, R eventually realizes he needs to piss. And when he gets to the bathroom, he... Well, he thinks a lot about his dick. Yep. And using it. Just like, look at it. There's his dick. He wants to use it. Not just to piss. <laughs> on someone. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, not piss on someone. He wants to use it on someone. Yeah. He wants to use it in someone, we'll say. <laughs> he thinks about his wife cheating on him in the airport and the faces of the people he barely remembers having sex with when he was alive. And of course, he thinks about Julie and how badly he wants to have a second chance at life and love. Because he's like, man, I got this dick. I want to do something with it. <laughs> Now, look, I'm not someone who's just like, hee hee, sex is funny. Sex is great. Sex is something that unifies people. And intimacy is a really important part of relationships. But also this whole sequence just made me go. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's written in a funny way. It is. Yeah, because he's like, look at my limp dick. Ah, It's not good for anything anymore. I really wish (laughs) it was good for something. Because, like, he does kind of view it as symbolic for his lack of life right like we just talked about the fact that he has no blood flowing through his veins i.e he doesn't have any blood flowing to his dick i.e he cannot experience intimacy with julie okay like yes it's very symbolic but also (laughs) (laughs) um when r returns to the bar the girls are bothered by some guys so they ask him to wait for them outside While he's out there, he listens to a recording on Julie's tape recorder. In it, she complains about her dad getting shit brick house drunk, like he's trying to stay as numb as humanly possible. Um, The guys who bothered the girls come out and start bothering R, one of them insinuating he used to pay- not even insinuating, he says he used to pay Julie for sex. And it's important to note that she's 19 right now, so he was, like, paying her for sex when she was, like... 15. It's also important to note that he basically was calling her a cheap whore, the way he said it, and not just stating that he yeah. did it. Yeah. Um, R knocks both of them unconscious before he hurt... Like, literally knocks one of them into the wall so hard that it dents the wall. So I hesitate to say he knocks him unconscious. Well, they do ask later <laughs> he knocked them out. So... Yeah. Um, I'm assuming they're not dead. Um, but he hurries down toward the street to try and be alone. He's like really drunk and he's like freaking out. And so he like just wants to be alone. Um, he happens upon two guards, one of them walking away to find a bathroom. And when the second one turns on him or attacks him, well, the guy starts freaking out on him when he sees him. Well, R is kind of walking like a zombie, but he's drunk, so, like, it's the same thing. And when he's like, hey, who are you? Are you drunk? Have you been drinking? R is just kind of, like, acting very much like a zombie. So the guy freaks out on him. So R attacks him and kills him, and he starts to eat him. But he's stopped by memories of Julie, and he leaves the guard's body where it lies. He throws up partially because he's drunk and partially out of guilt. And when the guard's guard's body starts to twitch back to life, he turns and runs before he can see what happens next. Like, he even has the thought, like, I should debrain this guy. But 
he doesn't do it because he can't stomach it because he already killed the guy once. And he's like, I'm a coward, so I'm running. And I'm just like, yeah, bro, this is a bad plan. You have a bad plan. This is this is a really bad plan. <laughs> uh, it turns out to be the worst plan anyone's ever had. But, you know, so R manages manages to find his way back to Julie's house through a downpour of rain. And he huddles up there until Julie and Nora come back. Julie, re- she sits with him. And she reminisces on some happier moments in life, ending with the story of the night her mom left. She asks, and she's drunk, by the way, I should mention. She asks R again if something bad will happen to her if she kisses him. But before she gets the chance to do it, he says he needs to show her something. He takes her across the house, uh, across the house. He takes her across town to the foster home where Perry used to live and takes her upstairs to his old room. He explains that humans are correct about their theory as to why zombies eat brains, then shows her the book Perry wrote for her, his way of confessing to what he's done. Julie reads a bit of it, happy to see that Perry was still writing because he only started the book about a year ago. Um, And then she hugs R, telling him that he's forgiven. Uh, So it turns out Nora was right. Yep. All R had to do was be honest. But I think we suspected that too from very early on when Julie told him oh yeah she was happy perry was basically laid to rest yeah so r says he'd like it if this were the end of his story um but there are problems left to resolve he still has blood on his hands and crimes he needs to answer for yeah and that's the end well that's the end of this that's the end of this next week will be the (laughs) last part yes and this next part, I'm going to warn everybody, if you haven't read the book, this next part is going to be the most violent um, part of the series, of the, of our series on this book. So um, get ready, because <laughs> a lot of shit's about to go down. Um, oh, God. That was a really good part. I say that about every part, but that part was really good. Um, you can see, and I think we have, like, miraculously somehow managed to split this into very cohesive force. Yes. Um, Because like this part feels very different in shape to the previous one because you know, R is, you know, I mean, this whole part takes place in the city, right? Like it's, which is a very stark difference from the whole previous two parts happening in the airport. So, you know, we're really getting into the nitty gritty of it because, you know, R, I feel like he had this fantasy of like what was going to happen, you know, like he never really thought about it. He never really had a whole plan, but it was basically like, I'm just going to go be with Julie and then everything is going to be great. But now he's having to contend with actual human society. Like it's no longer just there is this person who I have a deep, intense emotional connection with and I want to be with them all the time. But now it's like, oh, okay, but she's also a part of something bigger. And if I want to continue having that connection, then I need to also be able to blend into that similar, into that uh, larger part of society, which as it stands right now, he can't. Like he was, he was thinking real good about himself being like, oh, I haven't had anything to eat in so long. But here he is, like, killing and eating a guard because he got a little stressed. It's no bueno. He can't so, do that. No. He's just got so far that he needs to go. And um, I think that's an important realization that he's about to come to. Or, I mean, he's already come to it. 
when he ran away and was like hiding by her house. Poor guy. He's doing his best. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not trying to excuse him for killing and eating a man. Like, he didn't want to. I mean, the guy would have killed him if he didn't kill him first. But... I mean, I've been known to accidentally wander into farms in the middle of the night and bite some cows. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, But yeah, that's the end of this part. Um, when we pick up next time, um, we'll be finishing the book. So if you've been reading along, uh, just finish it up. And uh, we'll see you then, I guess. Do you have anything else you wanted to add onto this ending piece? Zombie penis. Follow us on Twitter at LitmastersPod. M is at M of many names. I am at Sarah S. Wilton. Shoot us an email over at LiteraryMastersPod at gmail.com. Hit us with a coffee over at ko-fi.com slash litmasterspod. Uh, I'm always on Twitter. Like, too much I'm on Twitter. I'm not, I don't, I, make no mistake, I'm not like one of those people who's like chronically online. But sometimes I'll close Twitter and then I'll open Twitter again to see if there's a newer, better Twitter that I haven't already scrolled through. <laughs> it's bad. I have a problem. But anyway, I'm always there. So if you want to shoot us a message, please do. I actually think my DMs on my personal account are turned off right now because I made the mistake of defending Bed Bath & Beyond on Twitter.com. I saw that. <laughs> it's absolutely batshit bananas. All I said was, Bed Bath did not cancel Mike Lindell, he made a terrible product. And now people are like, you're lying. You've never worked a day in your life. And I'm like, what kind of sad existence do you think I live? That I need to lie about working for Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm just like, it's amazing what conservative grifters can manage because they literally have figured out they could make a toothpick and sell it for $100. And people would buy it just because they say they're a conservative and own the libs. Uh-huh. But here's the thing about the stupid my pillow thing. All I'm going to say cuz I don't need to rant about this at the end of the show. First of all, um the pillow is bad. Like it is bad. I don't know if you ever felt one. It's literally like cut up styrofoam inside a pillow pillowcase. It is not a comfortable pillow. When in the early days of my pillow, I started working at Bed, Bed Bath and Beyond in 2016. I believe that was the year after they came out. We used to sell 500 a month. Like we would sell so many of those. Always we returned at least 50% of what we sold and would have to just damage it out and return it to the manufacturer because people would bring them back because they were uncomfortable. But then by the end of its run at Bed Bath & Beyond, we were lucky to be selling 10 a month. And when they got discontinued and were marked down by 70%, they still weren't being purchased. We had to ship out over 75 MyPillows from my store alone at the end of their tenure with Bed Bath & Beyond because it got to the end of when we were like allowed to keep selling it and we still had them. And they were marked down by 90%. They were five dollars and people still weren't buying them so like bed bath and beyond did not cancel my pillow my pillow was a bad product a hundred percent and that's all i'll say on the matter 
Jen, here's your Lucy mention. I don't know where she is, actually, but she's here. And Robin, here's your shout out. Thanks for listening. My friend Del wishes he could get that zombie dick. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye.